I'll invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Mark chapter 12, as this morning we will be looking at the last of four challenges that Jesus experienced during that last week before he went to the cross. The religious leaders uh, united in their desire to eliminate Jesus. He had kind of gotten on their nerves, both in his ministry and his audacity when he came to town, um, went immediately to the temple where he overturned tables and confronted the, the way they were doing church and doing business. Uh, and they were, although they usually were at odds with one another, the religious leaders were unified in their desire to trap and to eliminate Jesus. And so they came to him with a series of questions. The first was, which by what authority do you teach and do the things that you do? The second one is, what is your opinion of the role of government or the church and state question that somehow we still haven't resolved? And then the last one uh, that who was asked, or the, another question he was asked was, what is his view of the, the resurrection? And that while that is something that seems like it should be settled, and Jesus certainly had strong opinions being only days away from dying and then being resurrected, uh, some of the religious leaders, known as Sadducees, they didn't believe there would be an actual resurrection. The Pharisees being conservative and holding to biblical doctrine, they did believe, and so they were divided. And whichever way he was to answer, he would certain to alienate them. But he had answered wisely in each of those circumstances. And here we have the fourth question uh, that came to him, whether this one was an attempt to trap him uh, like the others or whether this was a sincere question. I guess that's open to debate. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we see in our text a man, one of the religious leaders, comes to Jesus and asks him a question. Let's uh, look to God's word. Mark chapter 12, I'll begin reading in verse 28. And when one of the scribes came up, to, uh, came up and heard, uh, heard them, the, the other religious leaders and Jesus, disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. Jesus said to the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come and thank you for this word, for the wisdom, for the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that you, by your spirit, would be at work here in our midst and in our hearts and in our minds. You would give us an illumination that we may understand not only principle, but uh, that which you would have us to know. 
You would give us hearts that are able and willing to receive, recognizing that some cases your word brings correction, but your word also brings life. May we receive it and be changed. And having changed us by this word, may you be pleased. May we find joy. And may those around us be blessed. Lord, we offer our prayer to you, trusting that you have begun a work, you will continue that work, and you have promised to continue it until you are done with that work. And we, your people, are one and like Jesus. Lord, be at work now, we pray in him. Amen. I was reminded this week, or I was remembering this week, of something that took place when I was in junior high or or middle school. It was a test that was handed out, but it was a different kind of test. Rather than a test of knowledge, it was a test to see whether those in the class were able to follow directions. And so as the paper was being passed out, the teacher was very uh, uh, direct and very intentional in instructing us that we should read through all of the instructions before we began to answering or doing what the paper, what, what, was, what the test was asking for us to do. And because we were in junior high and middle school, uh, not only did the teacher tell us that that was the case, but in bold letters across the top of the page, the first thing was, make sure you read through the whole, all instructions before you're beginning uh, and, and to take part uh, of this test. And so as people were taking their time and working their way through this test that we had been given, two things happened simultaneously. There was a group of the students who did as they were instructed and began reading down, read through the entirety of the page. And then at the same time, there was a group of students who were reading down through the page. And while the students were all reading down through the page, certain activities and certain noises were popping up all around the classroom. While they were reading down the page, some students were bending down and untying their shoes. At other times, people would just out loud declare, shout their name in the class. Not everyone was doing this, only some of the students were doing that, maybe half, maybe a little more than half, were going through these uh, um, activities. I I don't remember what the other ones were. Uh, And meanwhile, other students refrained from participating in those, even though they were the clear instructions that were written on the page. But whether somebody was one who specifically did what the instructions on the page told them to do, or whether they were somebody who had refrained from doing that, when we came to the bottom of the page, the very last instruction on it was this. Ignore all previous instructions. Put down your pencil. Only some had read through the bottom and followed the instructions to recognize that everything else was simply there to see whether or not you were following instructions. And I I will tell you, on a rare moment, at least certainly from my teacher's uh, perspective, I actually followed the instructions that day, rather than trying to do things the way that I I thought they ought to be done. But I was thinking about that as I was thinking about this text this week, because I was reminded that sometimes having the big picture, having the whole idea is very helpful in understanding how we are to uh, understand the instructions that we are given, what place they are to have, and how we are to live in light of the instructions that we have in life. And the reason that I was thinking about that is because this book that we hold very highly is filled with instructions. Now, it's not its only function. In fact, I would say it's not even its primary function. Its primary function is to help us to, to, to know God. 
It is one book, even though there are many books within it. The book itself is one story from beginning to end, and it can really be categorized in four different epics. It talks about the creation and how man had plunged himself into fall and alienation and, and, and the difficulty that we experience in life. And then how God has been at work in redeeming a people to become his own. And he has accomplished that through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And then the promise of what is to happen still that we taste but do not experience, which is the restoration of the way things ought to be, the way things they are, uh, once were. But in these pages, it's also filled with a number of instructions. In this book, we are told about everything we need to know about God, and we are told everything that we are to do, our duty to God, as we live this life out. Those who study this book and those who have studied this book from the centuries have come to understand that there are quite a few instructions. We, we call them commandments that are written in the pages. And the scholars of the day of Jesus had understood, as those who had come before him understood, that in these pages, uh, particularly of the Old Testament, we are able to find what 16, 613 distinct commandments. There's 248 of them that are positive. These are the things you ought to do. There's 365 of them that are negatives or, or don't do these things. But there are 613 specific instructions. It's a number that is really mind-boggling and overwhelming. The idea of remembering. I can't remember three things my wife sends me to the grocery store for. I'm supposed to remember 613 instructions of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. I mean, it, it just seems uh, almost virtually impossible that I'm going to do that. Now, scholars recognize that I'm not the only one who has difficulty understanding, remembering, and then obeying 613 things. And so they've discovered that God in his mercy has also given us a summary of all of these laws, we call it the Ten Commandments, that really create ten categories in which every one of the 613 laws or commandments fits into. You can think about it in this way. It's like a constitution with ten chapters, and every one of the 613 specific laws fits somewhere within those ten commandments. And so rather than 613, there are ten rules, ten, ten guides, ten instructions that we are to understand, not just on the surface, but in, in great depth. Now, even with that understanding, it's one of those guys who study those kinds of things who came to Jesus on this occasion. We're told that he is one of the scribes. He's one of the people who spends his life writing down what the scriptures say and also discussing with other scribes and other scholars what are the implications, what's the relationship of one commandment to another commandment, what's the priority, what's the hierarchy uh, that we should instruct so that we know how these things fit together, how these things work. And he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus this question. Which of the commandments is most important? We're asking in another way, he was really asking this, what is, the most, what is most important to God? And his question is not one merely that scholars ask, it's a question that is more universal than that. Because the reality is, whether we ask ourselves that question or not, every one of us has an answer to that question. Every one of us has an opinion about which commandments really matter 
the ones that therefore are most important to God, and which, well, they're important, but they don't matter quite as much. The reason I can say that with great confidence is because all of us have some emotional reaction to our failure or our violation of certain commands, and others don't bother us much at all. Some commandments are certain things that you believe that are important, and therefore, if you believe they're important, you assume that they're the things that are important to God. When you violate them, you feel guilt. You might even feel shame. Or when you see other people violating them, you feel frustration. You might even feel anger. And yet there's other things that, well, you break all the time, I break all the time, everybody we know breaks them all the time, and, you know, it's probably not a good idea to break God's laws, but... You know, is there any reason to lose any sleep over it? It's, uh, or uh, we, we must not think so because we don't. We don't feel guilt. We don't feel shame. We, we don't. So the reality is every one of us has some opinion, some idea of what is important to God. Now, they fall into various categories. Some people might think of them in terms of spirituality or, or, or biblical. So it's a matter of are we studying the Bible and are we studying and learning our theology? And if we have that and we're committing ourselves to those disciplines, oh, things are probably pretty good. And so if I, you know, run somebody over out in anger, you know, that's not as important as the fact that I had my devotional today. I'm exempt because, I, you know, I read my Bible today. Others, it may be more missional, and so the idea that we're going to go reach the nations and do evangelism, or we're going to reach out and minister to the people who are around us that are in poverty, that that's the most important thing. And as long as I'm doing that, yeah, if I, you know, skip out on a few things that God has instructed us to do, you know, the big thing, the thing that really matters is that I'm engaged. I'm doing what God wants me to do, what God thinks is really, really important. And others might think that the whole issue boils down to things of morality or of modesty. That, you know, I may not be doing much for the people who are around me, but I am keeping the standards. I am trying to present a picture of purity to the people who are around me to cause no temptation to anybody. Whatever the issue is, and these are just very broad categories, and uh, every one of us reacts to our own failure or to others' failures to certain commandments. And so the question that this guy is asking is not one that is merely academic. It is a very personal thing because the fact that we have these priorities, we have these assumptions, indicates we think that it is appropriate, that there must be something that is more important than other things. And the fact that Jesus answers the question tells us that there are some things that are important. And he indicates to us what it is that God does say is most important. What is it that Jesus says? Jesus responds and says this, the most important thing is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. And along with that is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And as we look at what Jesus is answer is, I think there's a few things that I want us to note. I won't go deep with these, uh, but I do want you to make the mental note and understand the implications for us. The first thing is I want us to note is the priority. The guy says, which of the commandments is most important? And Jesus very well could have said, they're all important. I mean, God spoke it. Anything God says is important. God put these rules in, not just because he thought they would be good ideas, but because they're essential to this life. So what do you mean, which is most important? He answers him. 
He said the thing that is most important of all is that you are to love God. That is the singular priority. He answers, the most important is to love God with your heart, your mind, and your strength. That God is our priority. That God and our relationship with God is the thing that should take first place and shape everything else that we do. There is nothing that rivals that. He says that's the most important commandment. Now, in one sense, we might think, well, that seems a little strange, especially if God's the one who's dictating that. If we were to say to somebody, the most important thing is how you relate to me or I'm the most important thing, we would consider that not only audacious but quite arrogant. The reality is we're not even the most important in our homes, our families, our jobs. The only place that we're most important is in our own little minds. But we know ourselves there. We feel comfortable there. The world operates the way we like there because, well, it's our little world in our own minds. And so when we hear God saying the most important thing is me, we may have this natural instinct to kind of push back and say something just doesn't feel right there. But we need to ask ourselves this question and condition ourselves to understand this. What else or who else would God point to as being most important? God who is God, who created all things, all things are created for his enjoyment for, uh, and for, uh, for his pleasure and for his glory. He can't point to anything else that is out there that is created. Everything is created to glorify him. The difference between God saying that and me saying that is that God is ultimate and I am not. And so God points to himself and saying, I created you in such a way that life works best if you understand who I am and that you love me and that you relate to me in the way that I have designed. And so the priority is to love God. And maybe nobody more than John Piper in this generation has written and expressed the, succinctly what that means. Here, listen to some of the things that John Piper says to us to try to help us keep this priority. Piper says this, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists where worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more, but worship of God will endure forever. See, the reality is Piper has grasped very well and, and put into wonderful words this singular priority that life is first and foremost about God and our lives, about loving God and glorifying God. But what I find really interesting, because Jesus is very clear, that is a singular priority, is Jesus' answer. Because Jesus doesn't stop with just one. I mean, he could have. What is the most important thing? And he gave them the answer of what is most important, which is God. And our relationship with God, uh, our glorifying God, our loving God, our satisfaction, finding our all in God. There was really no need to go any further. Because he had already answered the question this guy had. But Jesus, for some reason, felt that he needed to go further. And he gives a second answer. He says the first is this, 
Love God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as you love yourself. You ever wonder why Jesus gives that second answer? I mean, I know he's been grilled and he's been put to the test. And maybe he was thinking, not sure about my answer. Maybe I need the extra credit. So I'm going to give another answer too. And I don't think that's it. So why the necessity of giving two answers when only one was asked for and the one that he gave is clearly consistent with how God has revealed himself in the past and God's purposes and God's priority? Why give the second commandment when he has already answered the question? And I think that's very simply this, is that not only do we need to recognize the priority of our lives is to be in our love for God, but there is an inseparability of the second commandment that so much so that Jesus was unwilling to answer the question without adding the second one in. This is not a bonus answer. This is what it means to live out the first answer is that we must recognize life is about glorifying God, but in a way of doing that means that we live our lives in relationship to one another and that we love the people who are around us in as much as we love ourselves. We love them in ways that we ourselves would want to be loved. And Jesus is, is quite clear about this second command, and he seems to be quite firm about it as well. And it seems to me that this must not have been the only time he teaches this, because his apostle, John, who had spent these years with him, and who then followed him even after Jesus had died, rose, and then ascended to heaven, thinking back of all that Jesus had instructed him, when he is writing his first epistle, in the fourth chapter as he's writing to the people of God, he makes this statement. If anyone says, I love God, and yet despises his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. John is saying it's impossible. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, John's able to say that with strong conviction, not only because this is clearly in line with what Jesus is teaching here, because it's built upon a theological foundation that Jesus is reflecting in this command. And that theological foundation that is that, uh, for the commandment that we must love the people around us is that man, men and women, were created after the image of God. Every man, woman, and child who is on the face of the earth, who has ever been on the face of the earth, is the image bearer of God. We may consider them beautiful, we may consider them ugly, we may consider them blessed, we might consider them cursed, we might consider them normal, we might consider them weird. It does not matter what category we put them in. If they are born into humanity, they are image bearers of God. And that reality that is being reflected both in Jesus' commandment and John's instruction is the foundation which tells us that while the priority is God, it is inseparable from the way that we live our lives in relationship to the people who are around us. And if we left with nothing else today, I would want us to be able to think clearly, what is the clear singular priority, and yet what is so indispensable that it is inseparable 
that Jesus felt necessary to include it in answering the question about the one priority. It is love of God and love of the people who are around us. But I also want to think a little bit about the mechanics of what Jesus says in here. Because he doesn't just say love God and leave it kind of like a hallmark. And, you know, you fill in the card and whatever love means to you. He, he gives us specific aspects. In fact, in those aspects, the word all is used four different times. And any time a word is repeated four times in such a short place, it is an indication that it, it, it means something here. And so it calls our attention to the things that Jesus is saying. And the first thing that he says to us is that we're to love God with all of our, all of our heart and, uh, and all of our soul. And we need to understand that that's not just the sentiment. Like, we use that. You know, I love you with all of my heart and, you know, give them little candies that say so. Uh, uh. In a Hebrew mindset, the heart is the center of the operation control of our our functional operation it's the it is the it's the center of our operational system it's the place where both our appetites and our ambitions are born it is where our disposition is formed the soul also relates to that and the heart and the soul deal with everything that is within us, our, our emotions, our ambitions, all of that is together. And when Jesus is speaking this and saying, look, we're to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, he's saying we are to give it all, everything there is, that we are, we are to live to God. And yet, even if we understand that that's the commandment that he made, Understanding the commandment does not enable us to do it. You can demand somebody love you, but that doesn't give them the ability to love you. In fact, when somebody demands that you love them, you might think that there's something wrong with them. And even though we exempt God from being something wrong with him, he still is making this commandment. You must love me with everything that you have. But it's not like we are able to then say, okay, let me think about this for a moment. Love God. Love. I can't make myself love anything. It's not primarily a matter of a commitment. And yet, it is a commandment. And that would be a problem for us except for this. In that very same letter, in that very same chapter that the Apostle John wrote about the necessity that we love the people around us, he does tell us this as well. We love because God first loved us. In other words, because God is the initiator, he loves us and his love for us enables and empowers our ability to love as response. It pulls the cork from whatever it is that is debilitating us. And then the very next verse, so that we don't continue to stew and wonder what love is and how has God loved us, John reminds us of the love of God that is demonstrated perfectly in the gospel when he says this, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
And the word propitiation there is an important word. And it's probably not coming up in most of your conversations. I mean, I know there's probably a few of you out there that talk about the merits of propitiation versus expiation. And, you know, it, it comes up a lot. And both words are important. But it's important that we understand this word because it is how we understand the love of God. It is the gospel that we are reminding ourselves of that empowers us to love. Theological word expiation, which I'm pretty sure is not going to come up in most of your conversations either. They both sort of have the relationship to the Passover. Expiation and particularly the whole celebration of the Passover is that there was people, all are all sinful, we all fall short of the glory of God, but God in his love passed over their sins. And that's pretty much what expiation means. God just says, you know, you all are messed up, but you know what, I'm a good guy, just forget about it. That's kind of what took place, and the people of Israel had experienced in the expiation is that their sins were passed over. The idea of propitiation is also present in the Passover, but it's not what the people of God experienced, it's what the Lamb experienced. See, I don't know if you thought about it this way, but during that holiday, there were two totally different experiences. The people who, of God who got forgiven and the Lamb who got slaughtered in order for the people to be forgiven. What John is pointing out is this is love. Not that we love God, not that we had some sentimental values, not that we did some nice things for God, but this is love, that God loved us. And he sent Jesus' his own son to be the propitiation, to be that lamb, to be the one who took the punishment, that bore, the, uh, bore all of God's wrath, that took it all so that we could be passed, our sins could be passed over, we could be forgiven. God loved us in such a way, in a very tangible, very demonstrable, very profound way in the person of Jesus Christ. And what John is doing there is he's reminding us to remind ourselves of what love is. God loved you so much that he bore the penalty of your sin to set you free. He died so that you would live. He loves in a depth that we cannot fathom. And when we think about being loved in that way, then the response of the heart is to love. Certainly love the one who has done this for us, which is the implication of what John is saying. We love because he first loved us, and so we love the Lord. But I also want you to notice things. If you were to go back and make a note and look what John's saying in, in chapter, 1 John 4, he doesn't say we love God because God first loved us. He says we love because God loved us because he first loved us. See, the love of God that is demonstrated in the gospel that we are called to remind ourselves in unleashes our ability to love, a love for God, and an ability to love other people who are like us, which is what makes them sometimes seeming unlovable is they are too much like us. But God says, give your whole heart, but how do we give your whole heart? Is to remind yourself of the love that God has had for us first. He says then also that we are to love him with our minds. So we need to ask ourselves, what does the mind do? Well, the mind learns. The mind makes judgment calls. The mind develops convictions and opinions. And then based upon those convictions and opinions, the mind makes decisions. And here Jesus is saying that we love God by engaging, by using, by developing our minds. 
We do that first, as the scriptures tell us, by making sure that every thought is taken captive, that we recognize that there is a reality that we experience, and there is a reality that God experiences, but God's experience is full and full of understanding. Ours is limited, no matter how much it is that we know. And that the opinions and the judgments and the convictions that we develop, we love God by allowing what he says to shape our opinions. Our opinions are to be based on what God says, not what Mama says, or some other, whoever the guru of the day is. Mama may be right. And if your Mama tells you, do what God says, well, you've been blessed. But so the authority is that we decide what is right, what is wrong, and we base our view of the world of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, upon what God calls good and what God calls evil, and we see the world through those lenses. Loving God with our mind certainly has to have some theological aspect to it. In other words, theology means study of God, knowledge of God. And it really just seems incongruent that you would say you love God, but you don't know anything about him. I would assume those of you who are married, those of you who are single too, but those of you who are married, ladies, that if the guy in your life came and said, I love you. You know, we just met. Yeah, but I love you. Don't you want to know anything about me? No, not really. I just love you. Spend your life with me. You're going to know he's nuts and probably not somebody you should spend your life with. Now, the caveat on this is if this happened in your life, I am totally unaware of that, and I'm sure that you are a wonderful spouse. But normally speaking, How can you say you love somebody that you don't know anything about? And yet we seem to do that when it relates to God. We love God. Tell me about the God you love. Well, he's good. All right. Well, that's true. But then God seems to start looking a whole lot like me if it was just left to me. Like God loves what I love and he hates what I hate. And my mind's not being shaped by that. It's being shaped by my idea. We love God means that we would engage in, in exploration of Who is God? What is God like? What has he revealed about himself? And we see that in this word, and we see that in creation, and we are both awed and drawn. We love God through doing that. But if I was to suggest to you that that was sufficient, that the idea of using your mind is theological and moral only, it would be totally to reduce what Jesus is saying here. Because the mind is an incredible gift that God has given to humanity. That we are able to think in a way that no other creation, no other animal is able to. We are able to think God's thoughts after him. We are able to reason and to, and to explore and to go to depths and put things together. And you have particular interests and you have expertise and you are studying something so that you would become experts and many of you are practicing different things that you have knowledge. But since God is the creator of all things, we can love God by recognizing that he's created all of these things that capture our interests in order to give us joy and purpose and wonder. And we recognize those are gifts for us. We are able to honor him and love him using our minds by our study of anything at all in this world, not just the study of theology. To love God is to cultivate your mind, to use your mind, to explore and to be awed by God. To also love God with your mind is then to make godly decisions. 
See, God has given us a will, and our will is connected to a mind, and our, our mind sizes things up, and it makes judgments, and it makes decisions. And those decisions inform what it is we choose to do, which relates to the last thing that Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. When he says that we're to love God with all of our strength, what he's talking about there, in, in, in a large sense, is our body, our physical abilities and, and experiences. He's talking about um, the areas that we would have that we would call strengths. Now, some people have strengths, and it might be uh, physical, little physical strength. It might be strength of character. It might be the talents that you have. It might be intellectual. It might be the treasures that add a strength or, or power in, into your life. Whatever the resources are that God has endowed you with, God's intent is for you to have those resources so that you can love him with those things. And everything that you do, we employ them. For the love of God, but the primary way that we employ those things is in loving the people who are around us as a demonstration of the love that God has for us. See, the love that we have for those who are around us is a way that we are able to love God. And this is not mere speculation. Jesus has this conversation with people because he came to some people and says, not everybody who cries out, Lord, Lord, is going to see the kingdom of God. And he talks to his people and he says, some of you, you're in good shape. Some of you are up a creek. And when people wondered what he meant by that, he said, you know what? To those who are, those who are blessed, who are part of the kingdom of God, he said, you saw me in need. You saw me hungry. You saw me naked. You saw me imprisoned, and you provided for me. And they said, well, when did we see you? Hungry and in need and in prison. And he says, Whenever, whatever you did for the least of the people who are around you, you've done it for me. See, he's doing an identification with the people and saying that as we love those who are around us, it is an expression of our love for Jesus. Contrary to that, he speaks to other people. People who would be very comfortable in a PCA church, I suspect. And who would be very comfortable here at Grace Covenant in some respects. And they said, well, why, 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 why aren't we getting to participate? He said, because you saw me hungry and you saw me in need and you saw me in prison and you didn't care. And their response is, when did we see you hungry? And he said, whatever you did not do for the least of the people who are around you, you didn't do it for me. So Jesus is making a radical demonstration that we have been given strengths for the purpose of loving God by loving the people who are around us. And it's not a matter of finding a safe middle ground. We either are engaged in doing it and we are therefore loving God and engaging, or we are not engaging and therefore by not doing it, no matter what our attitude might be toward the people, we are not loving God and Jesus seems to take that very personally. Why do I bring this up? And I need to wrap it up. One is just a reminder of the priorities of our church, at least what they have been and what they ought to be. We have from the beginning and we continue today to be a church that is committed first and foremost to the glory of God, 
That is the priority of everything that we do. We want to make sure that we, as best as we are able, reflect what is true of God so that we can have a clearer picture of who God is, a constant reminder of God's love and God's greatness. And that is the singular priority. And yet, we cannot ignore the reality of Jesus' instruction here is that that must be borne out in mission, not just in terms of global to those who have not reached. That's certainly part of loving those who are our neighbors but being engaged in the community around us in any in a variety of ways. There are more ways than there are people, but we must be a people who are engaged in this community, ministering to those who are around us because it is not optional, it is not advanced, it is essential, it is inseparable from glorifying and loving God. And so this passage is a challenge to us as a church and as individuals in the church to ask, what is my priority? And the reason I ask that is because there are many churches who are well-intended and who could do things that I can learn and I do learn from who have somehow inverted these things. That they love people and assume in loving people it's loving God, but there really is no consideration to reflect God as who he is or thankfulness for what God has done to redeem. There is no appealing to the fact that this is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. It's just an assumption, or in some cases ignored altogether, thinking as we all have our assumptions. As long as I love people, that's the only thing that really matters to God. And therefore, they do not give honor to God as they should. Now, in some cases, they are tremendous in ministering to uh, the, the needs of the people uh, that are in great need. And I do want to learn from them. In other cases, the whole idea of getting people to come to church is, you know, we can get them to church and then we can get them saved. And, and again, I, I can't judge motives, although, you know, in my brokenness, I, I desperately want to but then mine are suspect as well, so just put that out there. But we need to ask ourselves regularly, what's the priority? Am I loving God through loving people, or am I loving people assuming that that'll make God love me? And those are not the same thing. And second, we need to be evaluating our activities. If we love God, are we those people who love God, but we really, you know, despise does not mean hate. Despise means I couldn't care less. The people who are around us, we must be engaged. Now, we've been blessed in the history of this church that we have always raised up people who have gone to the nations as missionaries, who have gone out to be pastors and campus ministers, who have gone on to serve different churches and lead different ministries. Even seminary professors and presidents that I've learned about in the past couple of years have come out of our you know, middle-sized church that has, for most of our history, been a small church. And in our number, there are some of you who are sitting here today who are incredible admirable in the way that you go about your lives, pouring it out for the benefit of people who are around. And some of the things I know that you do, and I suspect I only know a fraction of what you do, and I pray that we would learn from you and join you. And as a church, we've had seasons where we've engaged and engaged well. We've had other seasons where we have not sustained the things that we've engaged in. And so this is a challenge to us as a church and as a people to love God by loving the people who are around us, not inverting that priority, but worshiping God through the way that we love those who are around us and a call of taking even if it's baby steps to get involved, whether it's ministries like Lackey or 3E refs uh, with, the home, or with the homeless or the shelter that we do. Again, I, we'd be here another hour or two just to list off the ones that I know of. But however you are wired, wherever you have opportunity and passion and those two things to come together, I encourage you to get engaged recognize that every person that you are able to minister to is God's gift to you as an opportunity to say, God, I love you because you have loved me 
and demonstrated it in Christ Jesus. May that love now go through me to the people who are around me. Father, we thank you and bless you and praise your name and pray that you would empower us as a people to minister around us, but never losing sight of the glory and the grace that ours through Christ Jesus.